Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the set perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're revisiting The Majestic, a 2001 film starring Jim Carrey and directed by Frank Darabont. Over at Rotten Tomatoes, its tomato meter score is 42%, and the critics' consensus reads, ponderous and overlong, The Majestic drowns in forced sentimentality and resembles a mishmash of other better films. That is an unkind assessment, but as usual, my guests and I aren't concerned about what the critics thought. Longtime listeners may recall that I personally worked on The Majestic as an additional second assistant director. And last season, I hosted an episode of the podcast where my guests were background artists or extras who had worked on the film. Today, however, I'm joined by fellow crew members. First, Bill Hardy. You worked on The Majestic as a set production assistant. Bill, welcome to Below the Line. Hello, Skid. Thanks for having me. Bill, it's nice to see you. Looking at your IMDb page, it says you're known for shooter, collateral damage, step up, and breach. Again, as we always note on the show, maybe not what you put at the top of your resume, um, but we'll have to talk to IMDb about that. Additionally, I know that, same as me, you've left Los Angeles and are now living on the East Coast, but unlike me, you are still working in the film business. What are you up to these days? Uh, I'm taking the jobs as I can get them. I, uh, last summer I produced a movie, uh, down in, uh, Virginia called Machinery of Dreams. Uh, it's going to be, uh, a kids, an exciting kids movie that'll keep adults entertained, a girl traveling through, uh, different worlds kind of take, uh, in a low budget sense and, uh, hopefully coming out in, uh, the ne next year or so. And, um, yeah. Well, thanks, Bill. We'll, we'll watch for your movie when it comes out. Glad you're here with us here today. Next, Avon Depatikuka, you were the key hairstylist for background on The Majestic. Avon, so nice to have you join us. Thanks, Skid. Nice to see you. Now, Avon, your INDB list, you're known for credits as Planet of the Apes, that's the Tim Burton remake, Virtuosity, Crank, and Interview with a Vampire. What are you working on currently? Right now I'm doing a Ridley Scott show called Strange Angel, 1940s, really fun. Lots of creative stuff going on right there. Oh, well, excited again. Something else we'll have to watch for, uh, for when it comes out. Thanks, Yvonne. And in our fourth chair, we're joined today by Mark Ulano, the production sound mixer. Mark, welcome to Below the Line. Hi, Skid, good to see you guys. Mark, IMDb says you're known for Titanic, Iron Man, Kill Bill, and Terminator Salvation. What are you up to these days? Um, a lot of different things. Um, uh, we have two films coming out this year. One is uh, called uh, Ad Astra. It's a science fiction movie with Brad Pitt and uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Donald Sutherland, directed by James Gray. You'll fill in the rest when you see it. And then, uh, uh, as Yvonne, Yvonne and I just finished working on uh, um, Quentin Tarantino's new movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a very unique and different piece of work from this director, and uh, it was a joy to work on, and I'm really excited and looking forward to it opening in July. <laughs> it sounds like, sounds like you've been busy. Thanks for taking time to join us here today. Yvonne, you were working on that Quentin Tarantino film as well. Is that right? Yeah, uh, the best time, the whole time. I wouldn't want you guys to say anything to violate your NDAs, but I do hope when the film comes out, you'll both consider coming back onto the podcast and telling us more about working on that set. Oh, yeah. 
Well, I also think that's a pretty good um, segue into us talking about the Majestic. Mark, you pointed out when we were discussing before the show how similarly the Majestic period movie, also a love letter to that age of Hollywood, at least from what I understand about the Tarantino film. Similarly, the Majestic is trying to capture that feeling of how movies were at that time. Yes. So on the Majestic, let's start by talking about some of the major scenes where we were also trying to um, sort of capture that old school. I think one of the ones that comes to mind for me and one of the largest scenes we did in the movie was out front of, front of manned Chinese theater. What, what recollections do you guys have from accomplishing those scenes? For us, I think the uh, background hair artists alone, there were 20 of us, um, all really pertaining to that exact time in moment in time. And so everybody was replicated and we had, a, you know, um, Gwen Stefani was the Harlow character. So she was in character that was done in the main trailer, but we took care of, I don't, th I think there were about 400 extras that night that were seen big all in with a, a big, big night. Um, and from our perspective, we were upstairs across the street at the Roosevelt Hotel, which has a history all of its own. And uh, to be in there in those environments just makes it even more stimulating uh, creatively. And uh, that's just kind of my part from where we were standing. And uh, we were there all night. And then um, I had to go home probably two hours early because I had to go up to Ferndale the very next day. So that was a huge night. The, the extras were beautiful and glorious. Everybody working in synchronicity is what excites me because you, you see the wardrobe, if they didn't have their hair, if they didn't have their makeup done, if they didn't have sound correct, if they didn't have people wrangling everything, it wouldn't happen at all. It'd just be total chaos. So it's amazing to me every single project, how you, Skid, and Mark, and Bill, and myself, we work together to make this cohesive kind of madness, which is fun. Yeah, I, I, I'll comment too on that night being sort of, in some ways, sort of a, a, a single night that really expresses the whole passion that we bring to the, to the work. We're all musicians, as I see it, with passion about a particular instrument. But when we come together, we, we create an orchestra performing a score called a script conducted by the director. And, and that night was, so it's all sort of convert. We even had special you know, had visual effects because they were CGIing in the red car. Everything was about meticulous recreation of the period so that the audience would believe in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the creation of these characters and the journey that they were on. And that, that night it still sticks in my head. I love it. Important point. At this point in time, it was Grauman's Chinese uh, that we were recreating. Grauman, uh, later right. became Man's and then, uh, yes, and then back to just the Chinese. Yeah, from the AD perspective, I got to say that this was, I'm feeling like... Like in my head, I rewatched the movie last week and I started questioning whether it was one or two days because I got to say, this was Skid. I remember watching the sun set and rise with you. Um, <laughs> this was potentially an 18 hour day, I think. Did we? I'm assuming you're looking at call sheets, Skid. Well, they're not right in front of me. I'd have to look at the production. Come on, if I got, man. If I got, oh, my did, God. Did I get paid what for the double day? Not you? one or not. Uh, so, <laughs> really? So, but I remember, I remember starting in the afternoon, 
we had all the background getting across the street, getting ready across the street at the Roosevelt, which as uh, any uh, film historian is going to know is where the first Oscars were held uh, directly across the street from where they are now, which isn't, wasn't even there when we were shooting this. So this was literally <laughs> capturing this intersection in history at a time where it was about to go away entirely. They told us it was the first time Hollywood was ever completely closed down for the three or four blocks that it was. I know it seems ridiculous when you see all the other things they stick in front of that theater now. But uh, from a film geek perspective, in addition to being an AD, the uh, background and crew moving back and forth across the street between the hotel, the parking lot next door on Orange, the uh, the theater itself, it was it really was a symphony of uh, action. And I gotta say, the, a little known fact about this scene: Bill Hader, a good friend of mine at the time, was an additional PA on the scene. So uh -huh. the two of us were literally walking around talking about uh, blazing saddles, busting <laughs> into the Grauman's Chinese, where they're telling us that that was all stage work. The two of us were uh, having our minds blown that we were just standing in the lobby of Mans, of Grauman's, watching all this happen. I can remember sitting there with Bill in the lobby locking up when Cliff Curtis, uh, who plays uh, the bad guy in the old-timey movie, and Cliff coming in just because he wanted to see himself on the big screen at Grauman's, too. Like... <laughs> It was very exciting, like just standing in the projection booth. Oh, it's my favorite theater in Hollywood. It really is. And I I'm going to jump in a little bit because oh. Yvonne and I just reiterated that experience because Quentin locked up Hollywood Boulevard Hollywood. for a whole week and locked up Musso and Franks <laughs> for a whole week. And we were shooting exteriors. And my daughter, who's 23, will be 23 next week, was doing just what you were doing. She was one of the added P P production assistants <laughs> and doing crowd control at two in the morning for people who want to rush in and, and you know, see Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Pacino. It was, uh, you know, so in, in many ways, it was sort of a full cycle, full circle for, for me. And it, at a, at a, I hadn't really put the majestic in my head at the time, but this conversation is bringing me right back about how connected uh -huh. that all was. It, it was... Oh, yeah. it, I was I was doing cars out in the street at the beginning of the shot, so it was really I had taken a step back, if you will, because I had a thousand looky loos behind me across the street watching what we were doing. While in the meantime, I'm in the other direction. Coincidentally, it's like the Truman Show, where it's a everyone standing still, dressed like they're in the fifties, waiting for everything to happen. Um, one of the things that I'm hearing right now which just stimulates me even more is how much we love films. And the part that's so exciting is recreating some of the old films also that I grew up on and loved watching because they were just iconic film things, the coloring, everything about it. When we were inside the Grauman's, we also took care of all of the girls that were like, behind the concession and the coat check girl with all of that. And to me, that's just like, I miss it. I wish that we still could go someplace and, and not have to pay like $500 for the night to go to a theater and have that kind of stuff going on. So recreating all of that from each one of your vocalizations about the films that we do, 
we love making movies. That's the part that's so exciting yes, and recreating. You know, it, it strikes me, you know, uh, I, I know they're disappointed in terms of how the world reacted to the Majestic, but I know Frank and his writer, Michael, were deeply and emotionally invested in this film as their homage to Capra, as sort of a recognition, the, the underlying, you know, commentary about the McCarthy era. Um, you know, they, they really had the Jim as a Jimmy Stewart character. They, they, their hopes were, were very high and, uh, you know, and it, it reflected in the decisions Frank was making about the, the valuation he put on production and production value. It was at every turn, wardrobe, hair, makeup, uh, music, the, the, you know, the, the who he brought into the movie, Martin Landau and James Whitmore, et cetera, who all have this sort of reverberating, reverberating connection to that period because they're, they're, they made their bones in that their early careers. They were there, they kind of, you know, uh, gave three third dimension to to the environment of the film. A movie that doesn't succeed is as difficult to make as one that does. And there are many successful things in the majestic, um, even if it doesn't come together as a whole piece of cloth. And it was not an inexpensive movie. I, I think at the time it was ninety or hundred million dollar budget, something along those lines. And, yeah. and twenty years ago, that's that that's a big number. That's a very big number. Yeah. yeah, I'm not familiar with the exact budget numbers on that. But as you alluded to earlier, Mark, I think uh, they spared no expense in trying to recreate that setup. I had actually forgotten that we shot the Chinese theater exteriors before we went to Ferndale. It was uh, the Los day Angeles. before. It was the, the yeah. Before. We shot, we wrapped on Saturday. I mean, I, I recall you and I discussing whether we were going to go to breakfast or lunch when we were <laughs> leaving the next day, because I think it was 10, 30, 11 in the morning, and we uh -huh. had started at noon the day before, and it was nothing but trailers getting wrapped out so they could make the after the job. That's part of the reason it was so late. Yeah. We were just sitting in the AD trailer waiting for folks to finish wrapping out yeah. their, their trailers. So they could spend take the seven hour drive up to Ferndale. That's right. We were in that way. What it what it reminds me is that that means then that I was not yet an assistant director. Nope. You I had seven days left. <laughs> you had the first week and a half. You were a you were the second DGA trainee on the job, and then you became the additional second AD. That's it's right. as if I was doing the production report, <laughs> which I was not. I can, no, I can no. still see our ins and out times emblazoned in my head. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so that also means that I, um, I think as a trainee, I was being paid an hourly, so I would not have had my first official double day on that, no matter how <laughs> 16th hour, that's right. <laughs> uh, yes, because I had come in as a trainee. It was my last week of my 400 days working on the training program, was going to become assistant director, but was brought in specifically to manage these large background calls and coordinate um, the process of on that you uh, referenced earlier, where right. you had 20 hairstylists, we had an additional number of makeup folks, wardrobe from the pre-fittings all the way through getting people ready. Um, and that's, I mean, that, that's where I got to, um, Yvonne, we had worked together on Planet of the Apes before when uh -huh. I was a trainee, but I wasn't as involved in the process of that there. But this right. was where you and I got to work very closely on, on making that work. And might I add that I loved how you operated and how you handled all of our extras because I am a firm believer that uh, they should be treated with courtesy and respect. 
you know, we have to help them along. And some of them didn't know anything about filmmaking. And I loved these 200 people that we took care of every day. You and I were like partners in crime. And to participate in this and watch. And I do believe that your military experience is part of what makes you so precise and how to deal with humans and how to deal and keep everything in order. I love that part of it. Um, I got up to Ferndale and I had to pack this whole little trailer that I called the caboose, which also had extra wigs and everything in it that traveled everywhere with us. So after we were in Ferndale and we were working, we had, you know, we had our place in the church, which I loved. And we had all these animals around outside that you could go and take a break from the madness and see the animals but because we were in country. And this is one of my favorite places, Northern California. So the whole time we were there taking care of all of these wonderful people, they were so lovely and so, and I'm not saying that the extras in, in the business aren't lovely also. There's many that are, but these people were just regular people and they were happy to be there and they just were so accommodating with all of the things that they were not used to. I listened to your podcast number nine with the background uh, people and that was really fun because they were talking about you know, because when you live in the country, you don't wear a lot of makeup and you don't put wigs on. So they were like so patient with us. And every day they were smiling and came in there and we just worked with them. And um, if it's sunny, we went to the cemetery. Yes. Oh, that? my God. The cemetery. <laughs> That's on the T-shirt. You remember the T? I still have that T-shirt. OK, we're going we're moving to the cemetery. Oh, my God. Sunny, and to David to Tattersall's and to David Tattersall's credit watching those two scenes it's sunny in every shot i yeah. i think uh how many <laughs> times i mean oh, yeah i mean it was two two scenes and the cemetery that we established for the, the listeners that we established in daylight and or bright sunlight so in northern california the clouds would roll in and we couldn't shoot the scene anymore for continuity so <laughs> We we had to every day. It was on the call sheet. If it's sunny, we go to the cemetery. Go to the cemetery. If it's sunny, we go to the cemetery. Yeah. You guys, when we name checked uh, David Tattersall, he, David was our director of photography, yeah. and so tasked with the challenge of dealing with all these uh, various elements. Um, but let's follow up more on the move north. Uh, for context, for folks who are not aware, the majority of the film we shot up in the historic town of Ferndale, California, north of San Francisco. Another what, another four or five hours, right? Honestly. Five hours past San Francisco, yeah. The part of California that Los Angeles people don't realize there is California above San Francisco. We were deep up in, into that. Well, back then we that knew it because it was yeah. where the marijuana came from. Yeah, humble. <laughs> That's right. Uh, sorry to sidetrack your story, your, your point, Skid, but I was driving with Jerry Black every morning from the hotel to set and we were driving, you know, this the uh, highway between the hotels and actual Ferndale because we were staying in a different town, as I recall. Eureka. Eureka. And I can remember uh, at the time, I had no idea what Jerry was talking about. When I look back, I realized he was talking about the pot farmers with the AK-47s. But Jerry, every morning, would just stare off at the mountains and go, you know, <laughs> you know there's people living up there, living in them mountains, and they got guns. And I was like, what? There's <laughs> guys living up in those mountains, living in caves, and they come down, and, and then they come, go around, and they come back up there, though. 
what, Jerry? And uh, he was, he was, he was such a great guy. He really was. And, uh, but I had no idea what he was talking about. It was definitely pot knowledge. There, there was, you know, <laughs> itself is this most beautiful historic Victorian town with all of these beautiful houses and buildings, you know, building the diner and completely redoing the theater, the front facade of the theater that was there that was vacant and just empty um, and recreating the lobby and all of that was just to go with this town was so beautiful. Um, Everywhere you looked behind the town was the beautiful redwoods and huge forests. And uh, I mean, the visuals were amazing. We we actually were not the first film to invade Ferndale. Outbreak had shot there a couple of years prior. And it was... The background we had with experience, a lot of them had gotten it on Outbreak, the ones who had been on film. (laughs) You know, to the idea of having some, the weekends up there, it's worth noting... Jim Carrey would only work five days. So even though we were on location, which is typically a six-day shooting schedule, we shot five days and we had pretty much every Saturday and Sunday to our own devices while we were up there. Are you going to tell the memento story? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have a shaved head. You could probably show us the scar. I'm not sure I'm going to tell it in full detail, (laughs) but I will briefly. But I will say, uh, Hmm. basically, in one of those days off, um, Bill, myself, and uh, Harmony, the DGA trainee on the film. Oh, uh, I remember full-time Harmony. DGA trainee. We did a little bit of a movie marathon, and I think we saw um, there was the Johnny Depp film Blow. I actually wasn't with him, so I had this. I heard this story that night. I was like, "Yeah, um, this kid went to the hospital." Yes. What? This what? What? Uh, all right, so. <laughs> This day, uh, this will be an aside. That, uh, Does this involve memory loss? No. Uh, actually, <laughs> well, well. I, you know, Mark, I don't remember. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, You were our child of the 60s is what you're saying. I get it. Well, that kind of ties into the story as well, because um, I was not at this case. But uh, the, we had seen uh, Blow, and we had seen um, the Jennifer Love Hewitt movie Heartbreakers, and Memento was the third movie of the day. And Bill, I think, I don't know why, Bill, you had dropped out early and Harmony and I were seeing Memento on our own. And at some point in the middle of the movie, I have to go to the bathroom really bad. Now, Memento is not a movie that you can miss time to get caught up. Like right. you want to be the whole thing, but- If you missed a piece, you don't, you're lost, you don't get it. And I was loving the movie, but my discomfort got to the point where I had to go to the bathroom. So I said, Harmony, I'll be back. I got up and I rushed to go to the restroom. Well, all right. So this story starts to get complicated because a bunch of things start to come together. (laughs) We're having the energy crisis, the Enron-induced energy crisis in California. So they're not running the AC at the proper level. It's way too hot in the movie theater. Uh, I haven't (laughs) eaten anything all day except maybe two Baja chicken chalupas. Because that was when they were the special at Taco Bell. And we grabbed a little food <laughs> movies. And we've been basically sedentary for going on five or six hours. So whatever. <laughs> when I rushed to the, um, to the bathroom, I actually end up fainting in the bathroom. And come to with a head wound that is gushing <laughs> blood all over the bathroom. And for those of you that don't remember, in Memento, Guy Pierce wakes up on the floor of the bathroom with a bloody head. Well, that's 
most surreal part of the whole thing is because for the when I first came to on the bathroom floor, my memories were of the movie. Like, <laughs> like I was remembering the movie, the bathroom scene, in about a split second, my entire life came back like a flood. That was actually pretty awesome. <laughs> Your religious experience in the uh, yeah, bathroom you know, I, at the movie. I, that was it was hard to recreate. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like this sense of your entire life all at once. It was this huge relief. Now, it is true to go back earlier when at f- first there were these two doctors there with their wives and they were seeing me. They called an ambulance. Those guys come and because I had a head injury, they put me on a flat board and immobilized me, but I'm bleeding out of the back of my head. So I'm basically like draining out while they don't move my neck. And they're like, are you on anything? Because that's I'm on a movie. And I'm like, no. I'm not. They're all, no, really, we're not going to arrest you. We need to know if you're on anything. I was like, no, I have not done anything today. The movie theater did give us free passes, so I got to go back and watch the rest of the film. But, uh, Please don't sue us. Come back again. <laughs> and uh, one of the makeup guys, uh, Douglas No, who I'd worked with on Buffy previously as a trainee, he did take a lot of photos of my scar so you could use a reference, it. right? Could use it later. <laughs> because when it, you know it was late, it was late at night by the time I was in the hospital, and the doctors all, you know what? It's on the back of your head. It's under your hair. I'm just going to do a sloppy, you know. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't You're never going to go bald. He didn't give me the cleanest scar, and so yeah. So that is my uh, that is my Northern California story. Thanks, Bill, for remembering that. Uh, Yay! <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me you got lost hiking in the redwoods. <laughs> were you back on set at call? Oh yeah. Uh, so that happened on Saturday, and then Sunday I went and saw the movie because I had to finish <laughs> Memento, and then yeah, no, I was back there on on call on Monday, bright eyed and bushy tail. I didn't. Of course it. you were. <laughs> uh, uh, who's going to run this? whole setup so let's talk more about that Yvonne up north you had the setup yeah we had the huge we had a church and it was quite lovely because we were sheltered as opposed to being outside in a tent with a bunch of makeup tables in a parking lot Mm. we had the church that was our base camp for all the extra background of hair and makeup so it it was quite civilized as compared to some other shows where you have to work outside in a parking lot or in the dirt or what, like where it's really difficult so it was actually quite comfortable for us um and the church was i had a motor uh, a little do you remember my electric scooter <laughs> when you bring it up <laughs> Now, so that was my mode of uh, operation because to get from where the church was to where the set was and where the cemetery was, they were all around this town, which wasn't big, but to walk it all day long, I would not, you know, so I had an electric scooter that I rode all over the place. So we would get everybody ready and every night things had to be redressed. So a lot of times people say, well, you know, all you do is put wigs on, but that's not the case because 
every day. We would put these wigs on these people every night. I kept a certain amount of people to take them all apart and redress them for the next morning, depending on what time our call was. They would stay there and redress. And then I would go back and forth with letting half of the group go home early and the half of the group stayed late to keep this whole thing going. And uh, like I said, I learned from somebody else, my department head, Nina, had ordered uh, a separate little trailer, a tiny little like teardrop that I had shelves all built in. So when we moved locations, all those wigs and everything went in the back and I called it the caboose. And then I used that same experience on another movie that we did the same thing. We were shooting in Louisiana and had to go to um, Santa Fe and then Alma Gordon. Uh, Alamogordo and then we had to come back to LA so we used the teardrop to carry all these 200 wigs every day but um, the church was a good spot and we we were really well taken care of and same thing in in uh, Fort Bragg when we moved to Fort Bragg all the wigs and all the supplies uh, went into this little caboose that they took down with us wherever we traveled so we had it all kind of set up kind of nice uh, Yvonne, I had forgotten some of the detail or the, how, how civilized it was with the church. Because I think I conflated a little with when we went down to Fort Bragg, where we did have a large tent there. Like there were some days. There were some days. That we were in a large tent. Raining. Yeah, it wasn't raining and it was, it was civil. But we also had, there was tents for holding extras also. And we also had a big room. There was a ho- motel. I can't remember the name of it. And right next door was this like, I wouldn't call it a business complex, but a little thing where we had our room in there, which was overlooking the ocean, which was really a nice <laughs> working spot. But uh, yeah, we had tents and that's not as civilized as it was in the church, but you know, we still do it. And all that's everybody, you know, that's why the machine that works so incredibly well between every single department to move our whole dog and pony show or circus or whatever you want to call it to the next location is just a well-run machine. It's just amazing to me every time. I'm still in awe. It was a really good experience for me. I remember the movies that were totally fun and the Majestic was one of them. You know, I want to follow up on the idea of the moving and the challenge of the location, but go a little deeper on the sound production side. Because, Mark, I think you're the first time we've had a, 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 a production sound mixer on the show. And for you, I'm curious whether these locations do offer specific sort of challenges or is, it, is your job very similar wherever you end up uh, from on different sets? What do you think? I never come to a show with ideology, Skid. I come to a show with an open mind and trying to investigate what is, what is context and what is the right things to do, what are the right things for me to do to contribute to the storytelling. And it's always something different. Frank's movie had so many different elements that were joyous because of the time period. We did pre-record sessions at Capitol Records uh, in Studio A, the Frank Sinatra studio with Peter Erskine on drums. I'm a second generation percussionist in my family uh, for the pre-records for Jim playing the music, um, uh, you know, the piano playing and all the transitions for the, for the big uh, dance and party scenes. The locations are always about, um, about rea- reacting to the environment in ways that, that support the story. So if there are, el- for, for me, the threshold in any of uh, any location is, uh, are there elements that will 
um, break the illusion that this is a real character that are going to invade this, the the idea that that you know uh, we're in the 1850s and and, and we're hearing uh, you know a, a, a race a racetrack next door to us <laughs> so you know as an extreme kind of example so my first order of business is is uh, understanding the director's intent and then and build a strategy around that. So uh, I capture those original performances the way they're captured in a music studio, but I do it in environments not designed around the idea of recording audio or sound and develop solutions. The tools are always changing, but the storytelling stays the same. So I, I don't know if that's too vague an answer for your question, but that's, that's really the, the, the thrust of when I get involved with a project. I, I read the script, I, get, I pull together the post team, if they're if they're on the show yet, let's get down to get down together. Let's have brunch and go through the script page by page creatively. You know, what's this? You know, what ideas do we have? Hey, what do you think of? You know, uh, can I help you? And then maintain that contact throughout production. Mark, I think that's good context. And uh, and in fact, I hadn't given much thought to the idea of pre-recording. We did have a lot of heavy audio elements in this movie that um, yes. that would make sense to have you involved in the early aspect even before before we're on set. When we're on set, were there specific days where sound was just particularly difficult or uh, are there any challenges or anywhere um, like the There is one day that sort of, <laughs> there, there is one day that sticks in my mind and it was the train station day um, mm -hmm. because we were doing Steadicam dialogue shots and the wind was a tremendous problem. So there, we had um, uh, an army of grips around the, uh, 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 I think it was David Emmerich, as, if I, I remember, who was the Steadicam operator um, or the first camera operator <laughs> to, with wind breaks and, mm -hmm. and these big things to sort of keep the wind off of the camera, the, the, the camera sled. And the problem was that it was creating, now we had a, an army of footsteps uh, for what was an intimate walk and talk, if I remember correctly. And I, I remember we, that. A crowd it, of people walking, like a circle of people walking around the actors. Right, and so it was a cha it, it's what happens in movies when uh, you have competing elements. And it's really hard for the director more than anybody else because they have to, you know, you know split the baby. What, what do I need to do to get this the way I need it? <laughs> but what am I losing? What's the trade-off? What, what damage am I creating in one area because I need this piece? Or do I, is this, you know, how do I modify this so that I can have all of my elements come together? And it's, and it's the hard, hardest and sometimes the most creative and enjoyable part of all of what we do is fitting our particular piece into the puzzle of making the shot. Every shot's handmade, right? So it's never happened before. It's never happened again. And, and here we are like, okay. That has to happen, but if that happens, this is this is at a brick wall. Let's. How do we find our way under the wall? You know. So so uh, and and the 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 answer is to stay positive, um, not get drawn into you know frustration or anger or anger or anything, but try and come up with solutions on the fly that 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 really you know support the movie. That's you know you're, you're there to help the project. Yeah, that was. I remember that that whole day. It was a massive windstorm. The tents got yes. torn apart that day. Uh, the background tents got torn apart that day too. Yeah. Remember the uh, person running base camp got blown off the steps of a trailer and smacked right. against the side of the trailer at one point. 
And the it train is a safety issue too. You guys had a lot <laughs> right. of responsibility. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously in recent times, there've been some train injuries on movie sets at various places that sort of show how, you know, including some, some mortalities that, that show how much responsibility falls on the shoulders of the production staff to keep people safe because we, we can easily forget how exposed we are to an industrial work site because we're, we're making movies, you know, yeah. we have cinematic immunity or psychologically anyway. And <laughs> it's, it's easy, it's easy to get hurt on a movie. Actually, it is pretty easy. I can, I mean, speaking of pain, I can remember the wind burn on my cheeks that day. <laughs> i can i can still remember how how pink i was right underneath my eyes and just goes, Ooh, but, but you know at the end but, of the day, <laughs> frank, at the end of the day frank like other really you know seminal filmmakers as yvonne said you know some people who care about making films and that that that's at the center not but it's not about anything else had a terrific instinct to bring a great group of creative humans together you know, under one roof. And, and so once you do that, if you get great people, they're going to find ways of, you know, of uh, solving things um, and helping each other the best that they can. And, and Frank had, he had many old friends on that crew, you mm -hmm. know, um, both in front of and behind the camera. You know, I, James Whitmore was one, you know, he'd been part of his Frank's earlier films. I, I'll say this, my remembrance of this is that it was very painful for him to direct. <laughs> It was, uh, you know, because he, he's such yeah. a, he's a writer who came to directing is the way I kind of experience it. And he's, he's so talented at it, but it was really hard emotionally on him every day to just have to, you know, orchestrate all of these different elements and be, pep, you know, peckered to death about, you know, answering everybody's question. And, uh, and, and I, 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 in retrospect, I'm, I'm really startled by, the that there's not this a larger body of work from frank as a director because he is he's so talented it's at amazing it. yeah, yeah amazing. I, I really i i'd hope that he would make you know but that's just me that's my own prejudice that exactly. I, I think i would like to have seen a lot a lot more filmmaking out of him i agree with you and i also uh agree with the fact that when a director handpicks their crew or knows their crew so well they just bring them together and you don't get micromanaged. You yes. don't get, you have some, somebody pushing your head down all day long, trying to uh, manage things. They let us do the great things that we do. And we become very improvisational. Uh, I loved your thing about the train station. I remember that day. You just brought it right back to me. Talking about this is exciting because I, that day on the train station, we had over, God, a hundred people from my perspective. Yeah, it was huge. And a lot of extras. Yeah. I think it was a 175, 250 yeah. kind of day, if and I remember working, the background uh, numbers. A, a working train. Uh, c coming back and forth, stopping and her getting off the tr all this stuff going on. So, um, to me, the directors that thrill me the most are the ones who hire the their dream teams and let them do what they yeah. do, and uh, it makes the whole experience. That's why we go there and we'll jump through yeah. hoops for people That's when right. they allow us to do the thing that we know how to do. It's leadership through trustful delegation. And, you know, uh -huh. uh, this show had enormous extra days. I remember the Senate hearing days and just. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Those were, those were, yeah, I was about to say five to seven, I think, sure. between the two or three days. Which are for sound wonderful things because we're all filmmakers at core is the way I look at it. If you ever talk to your post, creative post sound team, they 
so prefer, so want the real thing in the room at the time, getting, you know, stereo ambiences of, of 700 people in the, that reverberant space and all that, that makes a huge difference, uh, you know, in terms of uh, versus trying to build it at a library. It's not, you know, something that all filmmakers are kind of aware of if they don't touch sound a lot, but it's, it's a big deal. And I think Mark Mangini was our post guy on that show. Mark is, uh, you know, an iconic post-production sound, you know, a supervising sound editor. And we, and we, I remember us getting together and breaking down the script in advance, which I can't always get to happen because they're not always on the show at the front end. You know, often it's not, they're brought on in the middle or later. And for me, that, that is, you know, the, 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 the only uh, substitute is how closely I can get with the director and their concept of, of what they want to have happen. And Frank was very, you know, Frank was very specific. That's another thing I admire about him is that, as Ivana says, he cares deeply about who's around him on, on the, uh, in the environment of the movie making so that he can know that they're his advocates, know that they're out there to get what he needs in this movie the way he needs it, even if he hasn't verbally expressed it. And, and it's, it's actually becoming a more rare thing. There are a lot of people who are directing from uh, fear or terror or 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 strat political strategy and and sometimes miss the boat on enjoying just the, the pure uh, 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 treasure of filmmaking and and he's huh. he's uh, one of those guys you know i yeah. also remember the cigar was do you guys remember the cigar uh, shenanigans between him <laughs> and Steven Spielberg? oh that's right because spielberg was doing minority report at the same right. time and they kept sending back video messages to one another right uh-huh. it, was it was the storm was... night at universal for the lake and they they were i think they they were either stealing or, or bringing cigars to each there's some funny thing. <laughs> all the details but i remember that i'm gonna ask him next week i'll be seeing steven uh, next week at our uh, at our event i'm gonna say do you remember the frank ben-? this is gonna help me actually i appreciate it <laughs> Well, that's, he that's visited us on our set on 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 uh on the set of uh, the film and Vaughn and I just finished. Steven Spielberg came and visited us at the yes uh, at on the at set the of Universal. On, on Universal, that right. was fun. It was fun. The, the PAs didn't want to let him. I said, "Sorry, sir, this is not open to the public." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, being a PA is a hard job. Man. <laughs> <laughs> we was. <laughs> yeah. I've oh, been, one of them said, oh, "I think Ridley Scott's <laughs> here on this set." <laughs> I stepped on Steven Spielberg's toes. That's my in my repertoire. Um, I have a, a wonderful little tidbit about the Majestic also. Um, my department had Mina Paskowitz and the costume designer and Frank Darabont. They were, uh, they, we called them the Hollywood Mafia. They went to Hollywood High School together. Yeah, it was the Hollywood were, High more, class wait, of 1980. Fun. There were more than just those there two. Were more. Uh, there the, was the production designer. There was like yeah. six, seven, or eight of them that had all gone back to high school. That's right. I just, you reminded yeah. me of that. Yeah, which I neat. love that. Yeah, I because, you know, it also that's part of that whole thing going back to segue to bringing people around you that, you, you know, have your back and will always do the things that you're looking for. To Frank's uh craft if you will that that is one of the major images from the film that stays with me is him with that green baseball hat that was just beaten and shaped to the top of his head and that high roll collar sweater cardigan that he was wearing leaning forward at the monitor with a churchill and between his fingers that long brown cigarette 
Yeah. It's, and just the intenseness and the, the blips moving with the lines. Uh, Rob Reiner does that too. The, yeah. the speaking the lines along with the actors. And oh, it's it. a Castle Rock movie, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, good point. And, <laughs> and, and Rob's, in the, Rob's in the movie at the beginning too. Yeah. Right. That's a recording session. You know, the, Jim Banky is from Castle Rock. That was his link, you know, into the movie. So it was, uh, yeah. And also, I remember Frank. Um, being very concerned about how well we took care of his period car that Jim was driving, you know, driving on the <laughs> lot in, in Hollywood at, at the, 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 the old Warner lot. That, that was uh, the, the, the car that he crashes in. The well it becomes that, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. His, Cause uh, I, uh, when it's all in one piece. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I had an image of that in my head last night. I, I don't know. Mark, you probably remember because it was a sound thing. There's a shot of Jim talking. Now I know we're back to LA, but uh, from Ferndale, but uh, Jim talking to the monkey in the passenger seat and the <laughs> camera, it's the POV of the monkey looking up at Jim. Yes. And all you can see is the uh, Ferris wheel in the background. And I remember locking up the pier in Santa Monica and yes. it was like a Friday night. <laughs> because, you know, as filmmaking goes, you know, your late nights, your darkness is always going to be on your fr the end of your day Friday. And it was, uh, there must have been, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people on the pier that night surrounding the car. He's there in the middle of the night in the movie, totally by himself. And that car was surrounded by looky-loos. I, like, I am always amazed that the sentiment of the scene is pulled off just because there were so many people. That, that car taken up what's in the, the shot field. that's yeah. it what is in the shot that's all that we're working towards it's great no yeah, but really. you know what that's a perfect example of the collaboration between departments you know I, uh, in my work i we depend intensely on on the production side to support the 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 the, the respect for the space for the actor and the directors to be you know possible for them to perform and and without your cont contribution to Preparing the environment, even if it's a ridiculously untenable circumstance, like 2,000 extras off camera in a silent <laughs> movie, um, it amazingly succeeds most of the time, you know? So um, it's because you have diplomacy, creativity, and, you know, a, a steel spine. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you need all of it. Steel spine. But yeah. Um, Let's talk more about the filming after we came back from Ferndale. Uh, Bill, you alluded to we came back. We shot down by the pier for that. Um, earlier, Mark, you were speaking about when we shot the House Un-American Activities Committee, um, which, of course, is supposed to be taking place in Washington, D.C., but we Downtown. shot in the MacArthur on right. MacArthur Park. That's right. Um, I, that was another example of collaboration. In pre-production, when we scouted it, I was able to work with the art department to put uh, circular columns in the corners of the room that were dressed in as set dressing to break the standing waves acoustically in the room because of the reverb, you know, reverberance isn't always bad. It's an actual reality and environment. It can be a, a, a good and useful um, component, but if it's uncontrollable, it, it, it's, it can be, it can invade and then break that illusion for you. And uh, it was another example of that kind of pre-production production inclusion of the departments, particularly sound with, you know, with sets to improve the space. And uh, it was pretty amazing that we, you know, I don't always find that the production has the capacity for that collaboration, but Frank's production did. And I, I totally appreciated that, you know, for, for him, for the movie. 
Uh, and it was, was a gr- it was a great place to hide an air conditioner hose, as I recall, <laughs> as well. Because <laughs> right. there were a lot of folks in that room. It got very yeah, hot. It was very right, and I, and I remember yeah. the discussion. There was a Castle Rock discussion about that I was definitely not a part of, but <laughs> but I remember. But it was uh, extra smoking, and there was a the question of Huac would have been sur- filled with smoke. Yes. And uh, and Castle Rock had an uh, anti-smoking Smoking policy. Thing. That's right. That's right. And because uh, I remember finding that out on the Warner Brothers set uh, at the beginning of the movie, having the I Alan had, Garfield exterior stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had three guys dressed in togas, and uh, one of them was smoking a cigarette because I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and right. uh, and it was that that looks good. That can't happen. <laughs> what do you what do you mean it's the 50s there should be more cigarettes oh, but yes. so that's why there's not a not a, a lick well, although of these smoke days you room. see these days you see smoking in almost every i mean it's all the time uh the film we just finished has a lot of people smoking cigarettes okay well, well red apples they have to be yes. smoked on quentin movies <laughs> yes that's right and they were red apples. <laughs> yes you guys are making me think about also at the the beginning um, when we shot all these, uh, the lot, the old school lot, yes. um, and we had showgirls and an elephant, we had all this stuff going on. There were over a hundred. There was an elephant. <laughs> there was an elephant walking through an elephant door. How many productions have actually had an elephant walking through an elephant door? It's yeah. the one time in your career that will ever, ever happen. You know that? Yeah, right. I'm sorry, you're not. That's just not going to happen again. Yeah, the elephant doors for those who have not been on the lot, so the very large doors that you can move equipment the size of the stage through as you need. You could put an yeah, elephant through them. You could put an elephant. <laughs> Cranes and any other hugeness thing that needs to fit through the elephant door. That's pretty funny. I, I had just remembered that when you guys were talking about all these <laughs> scenes that we shot and places we were. That was a huge day also with all that stuff. Um, yeah. 150 extras and they all had to look like they were on the old back lot and uh all super specialized right we, we haven't yeah, talked cards. about the sword fight and the and the uh, period movie, you know the whole sort of movie within the movie oh, the, yeah, the, the movie the, within the movie thing. oh my god that was amazing I, I i love that segment i think that was one of the most uh-huh. things for were, us to do. were you guys both avon and mark were you both there because i know i wasn't i don't think skid was either i was there uh, it I was, was there. pre-production as i recall it was a separate yeah. it was a movie it was a separate shoot you're right but it, it was, was a separate was, shoot yeah. directed by chuck russell <laughs> and featuring uh for those who didn't catch it uh featuring the indiana jones idol at one point at the beginning cliff uh-huh. holds it up as a, an acknowledgement to young Indiana Jones that Frank had been a writer on. Yes. Uh, and his time <laughs> with Chuck Russell doctor, on the that's blob. Right. You know, one of the uh, souvenirs I have from the film, and it was up on my wall for ages, is that we all got, I believe we all got, um, the posters from Pirates uh-huh. of the Hera, the yes. movie uh-huh. in a movie, um, was, uh, yeah. yeah, I have it framed. Uh, it's wrapped up somewhere here, still. Yeah. You guys, let's talk more about the cast on this. We've alluded to some of the folks they worked with, um, what Frank was able to bring in, the the quality of talent. Terrific. Behind the scenes, I think they were also very collaborative uh, with us. We're all on location together for a long time. Yeah. And even back in Hollywood, just um, 
uh, particular stories or folks that hop out as um, in particular? Jeff DeMunn is, comes to mind. Jeff DeMunn, you know, is, uh, we went on to do a Paul Newman miniseries together in Maine called the uh, 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 Empire, Empire Falls. Falls. Empire Sorry, Falls. Mark. Sorry, That's Mark, big. to know your resume. <laughs> uh, which the Newmans produced. But Jeff, Jeff was just such a sweetheart uh, at every turn. He's, you know, completely, you know, a, a people person, you know, earthy. Um, James Whitmore, I remember sitting with him and just, you know, I mean, I, I loved him since the movie Them, you know, which when I was a kid, you know, with the ants, giant ants and all that. But, uh, or Black Like Me, many different films. And, and he... He, he had to be, I think he was in his early 90s when we got him there, wasn't he? Yes. Wasn't he? he was yes. just like 90 or 90. He had the most beautiful eyebrows. He did. <laughs> when, it comes to, when it comes to crazy hair eyebrows, I mean, granted, I don't know, I don't think they were that way on them, but there are scenes in the movie where they're almost covering up they're his a eyes. Character of them, a character yeah. <laughs> and he was so iconic in, in Frank's uh, Shawshank, you know, that was such oh, a totally. pivotal role. Just to, so. He was an amazing man that I had, you know, I, again, cause I was loading actors into the van in the morning. I had the honor of uh, seeing him first thing in the morning on a regular basis and just, you know, <laughs> the nicest guy and always smoking his pipe. He was that character in what so many different man? ways. Yeah. I, I, at the end of the movie, I have a, a many of the original planet of the apes poster and his name is on it. And to this, you know, I'm there biggest fans of that movie ever it's literally uh it's on the poster i wish i had it right here that i could pull it out and show you i had to, i, I got don't him remember to him in the movie i can't i got him to sign well you I'm, I'm pretty sure he's an orangutan he's one of the orangutans in the uh, uh main council like i think he right one of the wise old, old white right wise he's yeah, with yeah. a in a scene with dr zayas i think he might be the judge or a uh, uh, but his it, voice he, gives he, away. Yeah, well, he literally said to me, "Am I in this movie?" I said, "Your name, I'm, you're signing right above your name." He said, "I guess I am." Uh, um, uh, one of the things about the actors that we had on this, and I too love Jeffrey Dimon. What a character actor and such a nice human. But Martin Landau was oh. so charming with everyone i mean he would sit with the extras and talk yep. to them he would come he would go around and tell these stories and everything else after the film was over he and his um gal pal uh who lived right in malibu right on the water had this uh little gathering and we went there and he he loved working on the majestic that was one of the things he said over and over again he was very happy about it what about our little um I can't remember her name. I feel horrible. She played the woman, uh, the older woman that was in the theater, in the movie theater. The candy lady. Yeah. And um, our guy that had the watch and all of that, all of those. Yeah, people. that was Jerry Black. Yeah. Jerry Black, consummate pros who come to work and they're lovely and they do the job and they don't do, you know, a lot of unnecessary what, how shall I put it? Unnecessary 
damage. They just come right. there and they share their themselves and they do their work. And it's it was so much fun with all of them. They were Mar Martin is one of that generation of, you know, contra last generation of contract players that were brought up in the studio system in his younger days. And they would come and they'd sit, they'd be there on time. They'd know their lines. They knew where their marks were. They knew the process. They'd sit, they'd come early and they were ready. Yeah. They were just ready yeah. no matter what. And they were relaxed. And and these were they, people that started in the uh, the actor studio, original actor studio people yeah. too, as I recall, because yeah. yeah. I had just worked on James Dean with uh, directed by Mark Rydell the year before, and wow. Elliot Gould's son was playing Martin Landau as James, uh -huh. one of James Dean's best friends. I mean, it was right. to then actually be working with him. Yeah, I, we I had the privilege. honor of being. It was a, yeah, uh, yeah. The, we became smoking buddies. Uh, outside, which you know, that's a horrible thing. Don't do it, kids. But uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, on a film set, that is, those are sacred moments. They can be, and uh, an opportunity for a PA to walk over to one of the star number two on the call sheet and say, uh, "Tell me about Hitchcock." <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah. and he turned to me, and his eyes lit up. I mean, I know it was a story he had told a hundred times. But he leaned, you know, he had his legs double crossed and a cigarette just dangling. And it was like, I'll tell you, you know, Hitch. And he said Hitch. And that was the moment I was like, oh, my God, you're so Martin Landau. Right. Uh, North by Northwest you're talking about. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, one of my favorite movies. And, and he said, Hitch hated actors. And I walked over to him and said, uh, what do you what would you think if my character was gay and it was a love triangle where he's in love with James Mason? even though James Mason is uh, in love with Eva Marie Sane. And, and Hitchcock said, uh, yeah, do whatever you want. And, and, and waved him away. And, and my, mind, my, my brain just almost just exploded out of my head that, you know, a, as a cis male, it had never even occurred to me that, now yes, that you say that, I'm thinking I'm running there. the scenes back in it's my head. It's on the screen, man. It's there, it's yes. It's all on the screen. It and, is there. And, You're right. And he and this was, what, 1951 or something? Uh, I mean, 59? 58, 59. I think. 58, 59, okay. yeah. But, I mean, just an, an amazing gentleman that uh, was a great actor as well as a great human being. Well, all of them from that era. I mean, I'm, I'll be 65 this year, so I, I came in just at the tail end of there still being a, a small population of those, those people of that era still working, you know, uh, got to work with Jason Robards and Ava Gardner and Paul Newman and, uh, you know, uh -huh, on and on, uh -huh. but in their later, in their later versions of themselves. And they were, they were incredible, you know, almost universally, I will say that people who came out of that era and were still working in their senior years were, very generous with with the, the the anecdotes and the storytelling. I, I I look at all that and I go, oh my god, we just we. I don't know if you feel the same way, Ivana, but you know, just this threshold of 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 connection to our core reason we're in movies in the first place. You know, uh -huh. I, I, I you know I'll sit at the ankle of somebody like that, you know, and just feel yeah. a, a sense of delight. You know, guys, um, help me round up some of those old crew folks we'll put them on a podcast we'll we'll host another session where we tell some of those stories well uh, yeah I, i'll tell you one thing you you know i got i got lucky i got roger corman at the front end of my career i i did a little movie called slumber party massacre uh, <laughs> written by rita May brown and and directed by amy jones chapman 
uh, where a 16-year-old girl gets murdered by a drip power drill killer uh, every six minutes. <laughs> but it, it created Thank a career. It, I, got, I got a year and a half with Rogers mentoring, uh, and I had a resume of 27 of six or eight movies. Um, and it, it was, you know, this, this amazing kind of, sense that you you have when you when you're you know when you love a thing and suddenly you're now you find you're on this glide path and and it's weird uh -huh. because we're now in that position we are and in pass that it on. they, they did also with the egyptian a retrospective of cujo and pet cemetery and stephen king movie well we had done those movies back in those days and now uh -huh. they're like the crowd's full and they're all there and we're like when we worked on those movies we had no you know idea that you know this you know people are going to see this in 30 years get out of here you know get out of town it's not uh-huh you know, so yeah. you don't know. And so our, our responsibility as stewards of the time that we are in movies that mattered to other people, the way those movies mattered to us, is something that, and I, I, that's why I'm glad you're doing this, Robert. You know, it, it's, 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 uh, yeah. I was saying this before we worked and when, uh, when Skid and I were just talking, is that we're, he's creating some uh, a, a first person documentation in, in, in camera here, even though it's, it's audio, the idea that later, 50 years you don't know, where this goes, but it's, it's, it's significant capture. It's a historically significant thing to do this. So, um, so the, what do you need? We, we, you, you might need some more. We might be uh, bending you here. I don't know what's your, no, I mean, you guys have set, uh, I mean that the profound context, I think again, for what we're doing here in a small thing and, and film overall, it does make it a little awkward, uh, to transition to a story that is a little more fluff. Um, but, uh, I just have a memory I need to confirm and, and, and Bill, you talk about, <laughs> Smoking with uh, Martin Landau. Didn't we go to a birthday party at his mountain yeah. house? I honestly thought yeah. that was the same. I think that was the That's gathering the that Yvonne was about. referring to. I remember to. that. Was, it, was that the party? Okay. Okay. That he hosted us out in his Malibu house. Yeah. And yeah. that was, you know, and that was the first time in my, my young uh, production life where I was, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> that kind of moment. Yeah. Well, how am I at Martin Landau's birthday party? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds cool. Okay. That is the story I was talking about. And I have, uh, there's one more question again, Bill, something you said at the very beginning um, that I am embarrassed to say I haven't put together till right now, but was PA Wild Bill? That's Bill Hader who's doing. Yeah, man. Who's doing the bear now? I'm, I'm, yeah, I was. Uh, we had been PAs together on the James Dean invented life that I had talked about and collateral damage, and then I got I went straight from collateral damage into uh, the majestic, and I really you know Bill was a good friend who needed the job at the time, so I was like, why don't you come play with us and hang out at Grauman's? And he was like, yeah, just for hanging out at Grauman's, like I said. And, uh, All right. Well, that's yeah. that as well. Let's. We need to find a movie that Bill Hader will come on and just talk about being a PA. I did a film with Bill after all of that. Now he was an established actor in Louisiana and I had forgotten, or I would have brought that up when we were doing the movie. <laughs> he was an actor in uh, year one. I didn't remember that Bill, because he always had voices. You know, yeah, and he was, and back then, this was the voice that he was using. I got to, he's talked about, he's told a story about me on uh, Conan and in a podcast on Bill Burr's podcast. Although I know that he sounds exactly like I sound when he imitates me, uh, it's, it's still a crushing blow every time. <laughs> 
I hear him do my voice. So this is how I'm going to imitate how Bill was talking in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see what you guys have. You guys have uh, we've planted the seeds for a ton of follow-up episodes. Excited to have all you guys back. But whatever in the future, this was a lot of fun revisiting this, guys. Thank you so much. For oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's our take on the Majestic. One quick clarification, right at the end there, I suggested that Bill Hader's nickname as a PA was Wild Bill, but that was incorrect. In actuality, we used to call Bill Hader Little Bill and Bill Hardy, today's guest, was known as Big Bill. If you ever see them together, you'll understand why. If you also enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave us five stars on iTunes. Fan of the show? Check out our Facebook page at Podcast Below the Line. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at Pod Below the Line. And if you've got feedback, Send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, and thanks to John Wan for our logo. Fan of the logo? We've got merch. You can get the logo inscribed on T-shirts, mugs, and stickers. Just go to redbubble.com and search for Below the Line. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks. Your hair looks great. <laughs> I was literally just, the reason I took my hands off was like, oh, wait, people can see me. <laughs> Robert assures me he's not recording us, right? Uh, recording videos, recording audio. No, he's not recording video. Video is only for us. All right, let's uh, light quiet on the set.